0: A nail man.
1: to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Meh, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And it's not an incredibly full show this week. I did make a couple of cinema trips, and I did manage to fit in a few streaming films at home, although not as many as I was hoping to because this week I did knuckle down and start working on my next video for my channel. It's going to be another Hollywood's fodder video where I compare an international film with its American remake, what in my opinion is one of the worst examples of that particular practice, although now I've done some research and quite honestly far too much research more research than I'll actually use in the video I have some sympathy for the director involved but yes I have been working on that video so it's not a very full show yet I do still have six films to talk about in this episode cinematically we have the art house animation where is Anne Frank and the eagerly anticipated new film from Jordan Peele, Nope, as well as the special release anime film from last week, Fortune Favours Lady Nikuko. On streaming platforms, I did watch a couple of films that were released onto streaming platforms earlier in the year, but now have been released onto the Shudder platform. So, a couple of art house horror films, I guess you'd call both of them horror films, but we have a film from Laos of all countries called The Long Walk, and also the British psychological horror film A Banquet. And since I had some time to kill and didn't want to tax my brain too much, I also ticked off the Netflix romantic comedy, Wedding Season. So, six films to get to, and without further ado, let's head on to today's reviews.
0: Big Screen
1: Where is Anne Frank? is an Israeli animated feature from Ari Folman, who in 2008 created the seminal Animated documentary hybrid Waltz with Bashir. And it's sometimes interesting looking back with hindsight and perspective on a classic of modern cinema, which I believe Waltz with Bashir can claim to be, and see how it was treated at the time. Whilst Waltz with Bashir did get an Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Language Film, as it was still called then and indeed also got a nomination at the BAFTAs for Best Film Not in the English Language, it did not get any attention in the documentary or animated feature categories, at least at the Oscars. In the BAFTAs, Waltz Bashir did get an animated feature nomination, as did Persepolis from Marjan Satrapi, which is kind of interesting, but... Both the Oscar and the BAFTA that year went to Wall-E. And I guess I can make a a claim that it's a very different movie to what's with Bashir or Persepolis, but Wall-E can claim to be a great movie. But at the Oscars, Wall-E was up against two
0: other films. And they were Kung Fu Panda and Bolt. Bolt? Really? When you have Waltz with Bashir eligible for the same
1: Oscar cycle, that's just absurd. I mean, essentially, what happened is that the three animated feature Oscars that year went to a Disney film, a Pixar film, and a DreamWorks film. And something genuinely groundbreaking and genuinely great like Waltz with Bashir got overlooked. And it's even worse in the best documentary feature category at the Oscars. Every year, or at least over the last decade or so, the Academy publishes a 15-film long list for consideration for the documentary feature each year. And Waltz with Bashir was not even on the 15-film long list, let alone get an actual nomination. And again, that year it was won by Man on Wire, which you can make an argument is a great documentary and might have beaten Waltz with Bashir anyway, but. Yeah, I mean, Waltz with Bashir is a groundbreaking piece of work. I mean, it's one of those films you can make an argument there was a cinematic landscape before Waltz with Bashir and there was a cinematic landscape after Waltz with Bashir. And yet it got basically nothing. In the foreign language categories, the Oscar that year went to the Japanese film Departures which quite honestly is one of the weirdest films to win international feature or foreign language feature over recent decades. Well, certainly the least heralded film. And it's a similar thing with BAFTA. The BAFTA for foreign film that year went to I've Loved You So Long. I barely remembered French film, which I think only made waves at the baftas because it's a french film starring the french-based english actress Kristen scott thomas so yeah i've loved you so long beat both persepolis and waltz with Bashir for foreign language that year and also gomorrah and the barter meinhoff conflicts were the other two nominees that year i mean all four of those other films have a much much higher profile in retrospect than i've loved you so long yet i've loved you so long starred the english woman so That's what BAFTA's voted for. I mean, I've long said that the Oscars is a broken system, but I think all awards ceremonies in general are broken, and that's why I do my annual personal awards and my changes to what I think the Oscars should be handed out to. So, yeah, I mean, Waltz with Bashir is one of those films. I mean, it's a great, great
0: film heartbreaking, tragic, difficult to watch, but it's a great film. And yet, at
1: the time, it didn't get nearly the attention I think it deserved. And Ari Foreman deserves a great deal of credit for creating Waltz with Bashir. Unfortunately, he then followed that up with The Congress, which is a film I did not like. It's a hybrid live-action animated film starring Robin Wright as Robin Wright, an actress who agrees to let herself be digitally recreated and then essentially retires, And her digital avatar goes on to create all her films. And then later on in life, she becomes concerned with what this actually means and starts kind of to rebel. I mean, it's, it gets a bit loose towards the end and I did not like the Congress. And now, Ari Foreman is back with a fully animated feature, Where Is Anne Frank?, which, as the title suggests, is kind of an adaptation or or a meditation upon The Diary of Anne Frank, which takes the premise that the girl that Anne Frank wrote her diary to, an imaginary friend called Kitty, actually comes to life in the modern day, and is voiced by Ruby Stokes, who is actually the younger sister in A Banquet, which I'll be talking about later, and apparently she's also in Bridgerton, which I've still never watched. But Kitty, voiced by Ruby Stokes, comes to life in the modern day, manifests out of Anne Frank's diary, and thinking that Anne Frank is still alive, and she's going to need her diary. Kitty takes the diary, which causes international incidents and police chasing her and all that kind of stuff, trying to find Anne Frank. And in flashbacks, we see the imaginary friend Kitty interacting with Anne Frank, voiced by Emily Carey, who most recently we saw in the awful Peter Pan extension movie, The Lost Girls. So Kitty travels around the modern world with Anne Frank's original diary, which everybody is desperate to get their hands on, and also interacting with refugees who are living on the streets of Amsterdam. So can the legacy and the
0: heritage of Anne Frank be brought to bear on modern issues and that's kind of the
1: problem with this film at the end of the day I didn't actually like where is Anne Frank all that much because Ari Folman made it far too much about the modern day and about the refugee crisis
0: which I think is a noble idea and I kind of see where Ari Folman is coming from but
1: spending so much time in the modern day with this physical manifestation of Kitty stealing this diary and running away with it. And throughout the rest of the movie, there's posters are saying, you know, 100,000 euro reward for the return of the Anne Frank diary. And Kitty is baffled and somewhat surprised by the fact that, you know, there's an Anne Frank bridge there's an Anne Frank theatre, there's an Anne Frank school, there's all these kind of things. You know, Anne Frank has become an icon rather than just a girl who wrote a diary. I mean, at what point does showing respect for a victim of the Holocaust become simple, crass commercialism? I mean, that's one of the questions which is asked in this film. And I think it's reasonable to say that this kitty, this manifestation of the diary, is very ambivalent about the legacy of Anne Frank. People know the name Anne Frank, but they don't necessarily know the reasons why we should be paying attention. The factors of antisemitism, the factors of hatred, what Anne Frank represents is slightly different to the icon which she has become. And it's just an object of veneration rather than just a little Jewish girl who lived in the 1940s through the Nazi occupation. And, yeah, I mean, I think there's some interesting stuff to explore there. But in having this approach, having a physical manifestation of the diary interacting with the real world, that raises so many questions. Because outside the Anne Frank house, Kitty can be seen by real people. I mean, there's a police detective who is after Anne Frank, which is actually voiced by Harry Folman himself. And who is this girl? What is she doing? What's going on? And there are several questions which never get raised, which I think should have been raised. For example, somebody approaches a police person and says i need to find anne frank i'm kitty you know the from the diary and at no point is there any question of a psychiatric evaluation being taken place on this girl which would be the first thought on anybody's mind if somebody is standing in front of you saying i knew anne frank i'm the kitty from the
0: diary the first thing you would do is calling a psychiatric evaluation also
1: the fact that the Anne Frank diary is missing the original Anne Frank diary is missing at no point is this classified as a hate crime which again I think in the modern day would be a natural assumption I wonder if it's neo-Nazis or some other right-wing extremists who have taken this diary and uh, Holocaust denials or whatever else. At no point are we invited to think about neo-Nazism, neo-modern-day extremism and acts of terrorism in that angle. I mean, again, I think that would be a natural direction for this film to go in, and yet it never does. Instead, we have all this interaction with refugee families who have been rejected from Spain, rejected from Italy, rejected from Belgium, rejected from France. They've ended up in the Netherlands, and they're just about to be deported. And yes, that is tragic. That is something which needs to be addressed. But I'm not really sure a film which is ostensibly about Anne Frank is the place to have those discussions. And the conclusions that this film comes to, in my opinion, are far, far too simplistic. The authorities, the Dutch authorities, including this police detective voiced by Ari Folman, eventually capitulates and say, "Okay, yes, these refugees can stay because we have been inspired by the story of Anne Frank. And that is just unbelievably naive. Yes, it's the right thing to do, but since when has the right thing to do overcome and trumped political expediency? Which is exactly what we're talking about. It is politically convenient to deport these people, so they will be deported. Regardless of whether there is a public upswing of affection for these people, publicity for these people, talking about the legacy of Anne Frank and how it relates to these refugees that is not enough these people would be deported regardless of any public health. i mean basically the dutch equivalent of swat would have stormed this encampment taken the diary, and deported all the people instead we have a happy
0: ending which just doesn't feel authentic at all i think Ari Foreman overplayed his hand with this film, where is Anne Frank? I think
1: there is great elements here. I mean, talking about the imagination of Anne Frank, I mean, there's sequences where Clark Gable and Zeus are riding horses and ready to do battle against the Nazi forces and the Nazi forces, which are these very stylized, inhuman, monolithic figures who are just big black columns with swastikas on them. I mean, it's really interesting seeing the, the visual representation of hatred through the eyes of this teenage girl, Anne Frank. So yeah, talking about the imagination of Anne Frank and talking about the way that Anne Frank's legacy is more to do with tourism than it is about fighting against anti-Semitism. I mean, there's one sequence in the Anne Frank house where there's a portrayal of somebody who is clearly supposed to be Tom Cruise visiting the Anne Frank house. And the visual representation of Tom Cruise is exactly the same style that Ari Folman used in the Congress, which I thought was very interesting because in the Congress there's some mildly fictionalized representations of famous hollywood people i mean you know exactly who they're supposed to be and they're all done in this
0: fairly elaborate unreal style and there's some of that here so here and there
1: there are good moments good things to explore in where is anne frank the title of which doesn't have a question mark which I've noticed consistently, there is never a question mark after the statement, where is Anne Frank? I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it is something I did notice. But yeah, I think ultimately this is a bit of a mess. I don't think it fully works as an exploration of the Anne Frank diary itself. I don't think it fully works as an exploration of what the icon Anne Frank means in the modern day. And I don't think it particularly works as an indictment of the treatment of refugees in the 21st century, which is something I don't think this film should be approaching in the first place. So I think there are noble intentions in this film, Where is Anne Frank? But ultimately, for me, it did not work. And for me, Where is Anne Frank? available in cinemas now, is a very, very low meh. I think there is some good stuff in here, but this could and should have been so much better. So I can't outright give it a nay, but I don't strongly recommend it either. So for me, Where Is Anne Frank is a very low
0: meh. And then we come to Jordan Peele's new film, Nope. Jordan Peele started out in the world of comedy,
1: but with his long-standing partnership with Keegan Michael Key, and Key and Peele was a great sketch comedy program for a long time. And then, when they split up and decided to go off and and do their own thing, everyone was a little bit surprised when Jordan Peele came out with a horror film, which seemed like completely a different aspect to what everybody expected. But then that horror movie turned out to be Get Out, which is mean, similarly to What's With Bashir, which is what I was talking about a little bit earlier. I think you cannot deny that there is a Hollywood landscape, a cinematic landscape before Get Out, and a cinematic landscape after Get Out. The representation and the availability of access to mainstream hollywood for non-white non-male people is so much easier after get out i mean the ways that jordan peele managed to make virulent and biting comments about racial identity and the treatment of black people in america in get out but also managed to make it a really really entertaining film I i think get out is an outstanding film, I mean genuinely groundbreaking, genuinely a seminal moment in history, or at least the history of cinema. But honestly, I think Jordan Peele's shot himself in the foot because his follow-up to Get Out was Us, which, quite frankly, although it had some very creepy moments and very creepy ideas, ultimately it was an ill-conceived mess, in my
0: opinion. And now we have this film, Nope, which stars Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer as a brother and sister
1: who live in a valley outside Los Angeles where they train horses, or at least historically they have trained horses for Hollywood under the auspices of their father, Keith David. But the family business is struggling, with Hollywood increasingly using CG animals rather than live animals in their project. And in order to make ends meet, OJ, played by Daniel Kaluuya, is forced to sell some of their prized trained horses To a tacky theme park just down the valley, which is run by Stephen Yuan. And this is exacerbated by the fact that as the film opens, Keith David, his father, mysteriously dies when metal objects start falling out of the sky. And oh, yeah, it must have been stuff that's fallen out of a a small aeroplane. I mean, weird, but nothing too unusual but OJ doesn't believe it but regardless with his father dead and with work drying up Daniel Kaluuya and his flaky sister Kiki Palmer are forced to sell some of their prized trained horses but then strange phenomena start happening in this valley electricity starts fading in and out there's mysterious weather phenomena There's mysterious sounds in the sky. So, what is going on? And if nothing
0: else, can they actually make some money out of this? Who knows? Jordan Peele has been very, very coy about the actual plot of Nope.
1: And if that's the way that Jordan Peele wants to do it, I will continue along those lines. And I'll be vague or reasonably vague about the plot of Nope but there are certain aspects that I do want to talk about so this is the first time I felt the necessity to do this in quite some time but at the end of this podcast there will be a spoiler section dealing with the film Nope because there are specific things which I do want to talk about, and that includes the fact that, as I said earlier, I think Jordan Peele shot himself in the foot with Get Out, because Us was a mess, and nope, while fun, while entertaining, ultimately, it turns out to be a remake of a reasonably well-known film. And if I tell you the name of that film, then you will instantly get spoiled for what Nope is, which is why I'm going to tell you the name of that film in the spoiler section. And another thing I'll be dealing with in the spoiler section I'll be recording at the end of this podcast is... Another issue I have with the film, and I think Jordan Peele has been too coy with the plot of this film, not only in the lead-up, to the release of Nope, but also within the film itself, because there reaches a point where Stephen Yuan is doing something in this tacky Western theme park down the valley. And suddenly we're in a completely different film. I mean, he is doing something which we as an audience didn't know was possible and didn't know that they knew about, yet he's suddenly doing it. And In my opinion, there wasn't enough build-up to that. I mean, suddenly we're oh shit, that's what's going
0: on? And it's not an oh wow moment, it's a oh, really? moment, and (sighs) there's stuff in here which definitely works. There's stuff
1: about fame and the price of fame. I mean, Stephen Yuan was a child actor in a sitcom, and after a tragic incident involving A trained chimp that is put in the background, and the legacy of this tragic event is still being felt by Stephen Yuan now. I mean, he is arguably, I I think there's no denying the fact he is suffering from some level of PTSD from this tragic incident. And that idea of having a trained animal on set, I mean, I'd think it's not insignificant that Dono Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are animal trainers and yet their business is failing because increasingly cgi animals are being used and i think it's very pointed that the film opens with you know this tragic incident involving the trained chimp that steven Yuan witnessed when he was a kid and that trained chimp is a cgi chimp performed by noted Performance capture artist Terry Notary, who, amongst other things, was the wolf in the last version of Call of the Wild that was released, the one starring Harrison Ford. I mean, there are no actual dogs in that movie, it's all Terry Notary. He was also the abrasive performance artist in the Swedish film The Square. I mean, Basically, if you want performance capture done, the two people you generally go to are Andy Serkis and Terry Notary. So I find it very, very interesting that part of the plot of this film is this dying industry of animal training, and Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer struggling in the wake of their father's death. And yet this film has exactly the same issue, because this scene where the siblings are dismissed and sacked from their last job because you know there's an issue with a live animal comes
0: immediately after a sequence where a cgi chimpanzee was on stage so yeah i mean there's some interesting ironies going on here i also found it very
1: interesting that when these weird things start happening and questions of UFOs start coming up, or as someone is dismissively describes them, I mean now they're UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. And the idea that UFOs or UAPs or however you want to describe it, I mean this is something which has happened in the past and can we make money out of this? That is the first reaction, the first thought of both. Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer and Stephen Yuan. Their first reaction is: can we make money out of this? Can we capture something on film? Which, mean, in Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer's description, can we have the Oprah shot? I mean, a shot of UFOs so good, it will end up on Oprah. And there's also a really interesting and really biting moment about the price of service. At a certain point, a TMZ reporter also shows up, and by that time, shit has hit the fan. So this TMZ reporter gets injured, I mean, possibly even terminally injured. Yet his first thought is, where's your phone? Why aren't you taking a picture? Not, help me, save me, it's, get a picture, so we can sell it. And the idea that getting a picture is more important than your life and at that point it's basically an either or thing either you save my life or you get a picture and he wants you to get a picture and celebrity and fame and money and all that kind of stuff i mean it's notable that kiki palmer has kind of rejected the family business i mean she's off being an actress dancer Screenwriter or whatever she's doing all this other stuff and ignoring the family business. do you mean to the detriment of the family business? I mean, the incidents at the beginning where they get fired from this film with this trained horse? If Kiki Palmer had actually been doing her job, what she was supposed to be doing, that wouldn't have happened, and they would have kept the gig and kept the money. Yet she was off. actually, she was off flirting with a girl. Not only is Kiki Palmer queer in this film, she is aggressively queer and makes eyes at basically any attractive female in the cast, which is actually kind of nice and I don't think can be easily edited out. So yeah, I like the fact that Kiki Palmer is aggressively queer in this film. But yeah, the fact remains that if Kiki Palmer had been doing her job,
0: That wouldn't have happened. She's incredibly flaky. And yeah, it's really fascinating. All the different things which are going on here. And some of this is very, very interesting. But, ultimately, this is a remake of an
1: old, well-established film which I will tell you the title of in the spoiler section later. So, yeah, this is fun, entertaining, it's got some nice ideas. I enjoyed myself immensely. But when you say, from the director of Get Out, you kind of want and expect more, and this film doesn't give it to you. It's fun, it's entertaining, I do recommend it but it doesn't transcend the way that Get Out did. And, yeah, I'm starting to worry that Jordan Peele has shot his bolt too early in his career as a film director. Because for me, nope, is
0: entertaining and fun, but it only ends up being a meh. And then we come to the anime film Fortune Favours Lady Nikuko.
1: Which was given one of those one night only limited special screening releases last week. And this is a film which was actually eligible for last year's animated feature cycle. And I couldn't find an extra legal copy of it. And quite honestly, I didn't look too hard because it looked like a lot of fat shaming in the trailers and stills I'd seen. So. I honestly didn't try too hard, but now it's available at the cinemas. I can watch it free with my Limitless card at the Odeon. I decided to go along and see it and just tick it off the list. It is directed by Ayumu Watanabe, who's somewhat respected for his feature-length anime Children of the Sea. And it is based on a young adult novel by Kanako
0: Nishi, who has a respected career as an author of books, which seems to be
1: mostly aimed at a young or teen audience. And this is an adaptation of one of those books, which follows Nikuko, a very large, very gregarious woman who lives on a boat in a small harbour in a small town in northern Japan. I think it might even be all the way up in the northern island of Hokkaido, although that's never made exactly clear. But she lives on this boat with her long-suffering and embarrassed daughter Kikuko, who lives in a constant state of shame with the antics that her
0: mother gets up to. But as this 12-ish year old girl is growing up and
1: things are happening to her, like possibly having her first crush, worrying that once again her flighty and... Somewhat stupid mother will just want to leave again. They've had a somewhat nomadic existence up until this point with Nikuko having a string of inappropriate, exploitative and downright con-artist men in her life. So maybe the time has come for this
0: family to once again move on, which is something Kikuko does not want. But then secrets from the past start to come to light,
1: and what does this mean for this ad hoc family?
0: This is somewhat what I feared it would be. Far too much time,
1: is spent laughing at this large, gregarious woman than laughing with this large, gregarious woman. And it also is somewhat hampered by the fact that there's some very specific things which cannot be picked up on by a Western audience. For example, one of the things that demonstrates how simple Nikuko is, is the fact she's very fond of puns, which obviously don't work when you translate them. So, as far as I'm aware, this is only available with subtitles where you can highlight the things which should make up the pun. And even the title of the film is somewhat dependent on a pun, because apparently Nikuko is a pun essentially meaning Miss Meaty, which is a little unfair, a little unkind. It, it also seems apparent that the accents of the people involved are also relevant. So that's
0: also something which cannot easily be picked up on by a Western audience. And there's lots of stuff
1: going on here. I mean, there's magic realist moments when, for example, whenever the girl Kikuko walks past a particular shrine, the shrine talks to her. And this continues throughout the course of the film. There's also a little pink lizard which talks to her. And apparently she responds to The boy she has a crush on. Has this weird thing where apparently he ticks. His face grimaces in extreme ways when people aren't looking at him. It basically appears like this kid has Tourette's of some kind, not with the verbal ticks, but with the facial ticks. And yet nothing is done about this, nothing is dealt with on, on this. It's just yet another thing and yet another quirk which is going on with this character. And the shame and the embarrassment that this young girl, Kikuko, feels about her mother, I mean, it gets to be rather unkind by the end. Yes, she's a little bit simple, even a little bit stupid, but Nikuko does not deserve the treatment that her daughter gives her. And the treatment that the rest of the town gives. So oh, look at the fat lady who works at the grill shop. We can just dismiss
0: her out of hand. And gay it's It's not kind. And
1: it also doesn't help that there's lots and lots of different genres going on at one at the same time. I mean, as I said, there's lots of magic realist elements with things and creatures talking to this young girl there's absurd comedy with you know this large character lady nikuko being very over designed i mean she is the only one who looks you know super deformed is one of the terms for it in anime everybody else looks more or less realistic and yet nikuko is just a blob basically so there's some absurdism going on here And there's also elements of the coming-of-age story and the family drama. I mean, the specific background of this mother and daughter is the focus of the plot towards the second half of the film and also the fact that this 12-ish-year-old girl hasn't started menstruating yet. I mean, it's literally a coming-of-age story in a a particular way. Uh, And all of that is going on at the same time. And by the time... The serious stuff happens towards the end, you know, with the family drama, you know, the melodrama about the specific background, the specific details about this young girl growing up. By the time all that serious stuff has started happening, as some of the more absurd elements have been explained, for me, it was too late trying to bring it back by the end of the movie, saying, Oh yeah, that absurdist stuff you saw earlier in the film, actually there's a real-life legitimate explanation for it.
0: Too late. Uh, I just didn't care by that point. And yeah, this is a film I didn't respond to. I mean, I am an admirer
1: of anime. I wouldn't say I'm a fan of anime. Sometimes an anime hits me really, really hard, like Pompo the Cinephile did, which I will continue banging the table for for time immemorial because I think that's excellent. But sometimes it's just a miss. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of The Deer King the other week. I'm not a fan of this, Fortune Favours Lady Nakuko. I'm not even bothering with next week's anime release, which is a new version of Dragon Ball Z by the looks of it, which I just don't care about. And yeah, Fortune Favors Lady Nakuko is far too much about fat shaming. It's far too absurd and then tries to bring it back by the end. I mean, the fact that one of the characters seems to have Tourette's and that's not
0: being addressed at all, I had an issue with. I also think there's some pretty harsh
1: aspects of the story. I mean, this is a PG film, and yet there's some very, very dark elements to the true story of this mother and daughter's background. And Yeah, it's a mess. It really is a mess, with too much stuff going on at the same time, and not all of it fitting together. I mean, none of it really fitting together. So, yeah... I did not respond favourably to Fortune Favours Lady Nakuko. You probably won't be able to find it at the cinema anymore, but if you can, I don't think you should bother. Because for me, Fortune Favours Lady Nakuko is, unfortunately,
0: an A. Home Movies The Long Walk is a film from Laos.
1: One of the more unusual countries (laughs) I've seen a film from. And it exists and has been recognised internationally thanks to one woman, Mattie Doe, who is almost single-handedly the Laotian film industry, or certainly she's the only Laotian director with any kind of international profile. She was born in Los Angeles to Laotian refugee parents but 10 years ago moved back to her parents ancestral home of Laos alongside her american husband christopher larsen who also acts as her screenwriter the long walk is her third film and all of them have been some variation on a ghost story or a genre film chanthali was her debut her second feature dearest sister Got a lot of attention at international film festivals. I strongly considered seeing it at the 2017 London Film Festival, and indeed Laos did submit it to the 2018 Oscars. And now we have The Long Walk, which has played at the Venice, Toronto, and Busan film festivals back in 2019, as well as the two largest genre film festivals in the world fantastic fest in america and sit Hairs in catalonia so some very high profile festival appearances for the long walk and earlier this year it did get distribution in the english-speaking world it played in america earlier in the year it got a streaming release earlier in the year here in the uk but I had noticed by that point that Matty Doe's last film, Dearest Sister, had actually shown up on Shudder. So when I noticed this film, The Long Walk, having a streaming release, I thought, okay, that does look interesting, but my hope is that sometime towards the end of the year it will also show up on Shudder.com. And indeed it did, so I could watch it for free with my Shudder subscription. And I'm rather pleased I did. Now, before I go any further, I am almost certainly going to absolutely butcher all the Lao names I'm about to say. So, apologies for my cultural inferiority. (laughs) But The Long Walk tells the story of an old man, played by Yanawuthi Chanthalungzi, who lives as a hermit in. The near future. This is a world where supersonic jets constantly fly overhead, currency is dealt with by, by a chip in everybody's arm. This is, as it turns out, about 50 years in the future. It emerges that this old man who lives alone in a village in Laos is constantly in contact with the ghost of a young woman, a silent ghost who constantly walks down this road with him between the local village and his shack. And it emerges that 50 years ago, when Yonawuthi Chantalungsi was a boy, played by poor Silatza, he saw this young woman... Nute Napfer Soidara die in a motorcycle accident. He was walking down the road, and just off the road into the jungle, he finds this dying young woman next to her scooter. And ever since this interaction, when he was a boy, the ghost of this young woman, the silent ghost of this young woman, has basically accompanied him everywhere he goes. But now, 50 years later, he starts to realise that when he accompanies the ghost of this young girl,
0: Yenawuthi Chantalungsi can travel back in time to when he was this young boy, poor Silatza,
1: and potentially change the direction his life has gone, with his Alcoholic and occasionally abusive, and eventually absent father, and his mother, who is dying of some kind of respiratory illness probably tuberculosis. And the death of his mother when he was a young boy has drastically affected this 50 year old man. I mean, living alone, not having any real contact with the modern world. And also, when he feels the need, he eases the suffering of women in the village and lets them die with dignity. So not only is he surrounded by the ghost of this young woman, Nutnapfa Soidara, but also about half a dozen old women who he has helped along the path to end their suffering. But as this time travel plot goes along, and this 50 year old man has more and more interactions with his younger self, things start to get complicated. And the law of unintended consequences starts having a very,
0: very strong effect on this story. So I watched this film for
1: the novelty value more than anything it's like oh look here's a film with something of a high profile i mean there was a write-up of it in the radio times for god's sake when it came out streaming back in february and it's a film from laos i've never seen a film from laos and since i can probably see it for free on shudder i may as well and you know not insignificantly it also makes my decision to buy a subscription to shudder more financially viable so i mean it it was for novelty's sake, more than anything, that I watched The Long Walk.
0: But I have to say, I really, really liked this film, The Long Walk. And unfortunately, it's the kind of film that I really,
1: really loved. But I think I'm going to struggle to articulate just why I think this film is so outstanding and. I strongly recommend it. This has been marketed as a ghost story. I mean, not only is it available on Shudder.com, but when I saw those write-ups back in February, it was described as a ghost story. I mean, yes, a ghost story with time-travelling elements, but a ghost story. But what makes this film really sing for me and what piques my particular interests is the time travel star. For me, this is a time travel story with mystical elements, rather than a mystical story with time travel elements. This is a film which really delves into the consequences of time travel, both the physical ways that the world is affected by time travel, and also the emotional landscape of this man and indeed this young boy as the time travel plot goes along, and things get more and more out of hand. At the end of the day, this has quite a lot in common with Ray Bradbury's classic short story, A Sound of Thunder, where small changes made in the past, what at the time seemed like very good reasons, have absolutely catastrophic consequences in the modern day. I was also strongly reminded of Nacho Vigalondo's excellent time travel movie, Time Crimes.
0: The emotional landscape that this reserved, damaged 50-year-old man has
1: for what happened to him when he was younger, not only being there as this young girl died after her scooter accident, but also witnessing the death of his mother and being abandoned by his alcoholic father who you know went away to the capital for work and was never heard from again and that wasn't such a bad thing since he was a drinker so i mean this is a traumatized boy who's grown into a traumatized man and his way of dealing with his trauma is to ease the suffering of these Older women, you know, giving them pills, helping them move on, letting them die with dignity.
0: He's an angel of mercy. Technically, he's a serial killer, which is another
1: strange genre you could put this film into. And the more the film goes on, the more you realise just how apt that is. Because. Culturally, there's some really interesting stuff going on here as well, because Laos is a Buddhist country. And a concept which kept coming to mind as well is the concept of samsara, the idea of the unending cycle of birth and death and eventually escaping the torment of this cycle to achieve nirvana. But the cycle of history is something which is going on here. Things Happening over and over again, and being unable to break that cycle. The selfishness of this man is something which comes into focus because, in Laotian tradition, when you die, you are cremated, and that gives you the opportunity to either continue this cycle of samsara or to escape to nirvana. But what this man has been doing is yes easing the suffering, but he is intentionally making these women ghosts. He is intentionally trapping them in the spirit world for a bit of company more than anything. I mean, in his mind, he is helping people, and he wants them to stay in this particular beautiful, you know, ancient graveyard, you know, with the funeral pillars. I mean, I'm not exactly sure how laotian culture works but you know this abandoned derelict graveyard it's a beautiful spot and it was his mother's favorite spot so he wants his mother to stay there and he wants all these other women to stay there as spirits despite the fact that in laotian tradition and also in the actions and the intentions of these characters They'd much rather move on to the next stage of their existence. So he is being incredibly selfish here. And it's what he wants, rather than what these women want. I mean, we know that he's done this roughly half a dozen times, but we only see it in action one time. There is a woman who runs the local noodle shop in the nearby village. And she was suffering from Alzheimer's. Her daughter had moved away to the big city, had abandoned her mother. She couldn't even keep this tiny noodle shop running. She was struggling. So in Yanawuthi Chanthalungsi's mind, this meant if I just kill her, it would ease her suffering. So it, it, it's something that he's decided to do for himself. But I mean, you can kind of see his reasoning. But the fact that he does this and keeps the spirit trapped in this graveyard, I mean, yes, it's a beautiful spot, but that's not how Laotian tradition would have it be. You realise just how selfish and how it's his idea he wants this, not what the actual person wants. Who, yes, she was losing her mind, but maybe she would actually like to keep on living. And then when this woman's daughter shows up and approaches this man and says, "Look, you're the man who, everybody says, talks to ghosts. Is there any chance you can contact my mother?" So this old man and this daughter of the woman he's just killed, or you're know, given a terminal amount of pills to. Start interacting with each other. Uh, and I mean, that's just accepted. I mean, again, this is a cultural thing. I mean, as I said, this is set in the near future. So, in the same conversation, we have a conversation with a local policeman who is having a conversation about the identity chip which is embedded in the dead woman's wrist. And in the same conversation, talking to her spirit so it's this combination of spiritualism and tradition of southeast asia and modern and future technology i mean and it's all going on at the same time and these interactions between yantawuthi chandathalungsi and this young woman viluna fetmani become really interesting because he's trying to keep this secret and this young woman feels an enormous amount of guilt for, you know, running away to the capital to pursue her own interests and leaving her struggling mother behind and not really giving her a second thought, which is another reason why Yantaminti, Chanthalungse thought it was a good idea to just kill her. But their interactions become really, really interesting and there's something of a bond going on there. And, yeah, you know, also... Interestingly, some random queerness as well, because this young woman's girlfriend comes from the big city at one point. And, you know, it's noted, not commented upon, and accepted. So, you know, random acts of queerness, that was nice to see in a Laotian film. But, I mean, this odd relationship forms between the two, and it's this relationship which is drastically and harmfully changed by the time travel stuff you are going back and doing something which seems like a good idea you know this is what my mother would have wanted i mean really it's what he wants as we've already established it's very very selfish what he's doing but he does it and then when he comes back to the present day when he's the 50 year old man again terrible things have happened and it's really really fascinating seeing this whole thing play out. I mean, I cannot tell you how impressed I am with this film, and also how surprised I am at how impressed I was with The Long Walk. I mean, like I said, I mean, this was novelty. I mean, oh yeah, a film from Laos, that sounds cool. Why not do that? I can watch it for free. It justifies me buying a Shudder subscription. Why not? But I was really. Really impressed with the long walk. This is a fascinating story about time travel. It's a fascinating story about the spiritual world and Buddhist philosophy. It's a fascinating examination of this particular character. It's a character study. At certain points during the course of this film, we are on his side, but as more time passes, the more we realise. Actually, what he's doing is really, really not a good idea. It's really not healthy. And at some point, he knows that, actually, am I doing the right thing? But seeing that whole thing play out and discovering all the subtle nuances, all the little differences, how this man's psychology, this man's damaged psychology,
0: deals with the spirit world it's fascinating stuff i was really
1: really impressed with the long walk you can find it on generic streaming platforms at this point it's actually rather cheap on generic streaming platforms or if you do have a shudder.com subscription you can also find it there and however you do find it i strongly recommend it It amazes me to say this, but I was genuinely impressed, and I genuinely,
0: strongly recommend The Long Walk, which for me is a yay. The other film I watched on
1: Shudder this week is a similar pattern. This is a film which was released earlier in the year, this came out on generic streaming platforms back in March, and it also played at last year's London Film Festival. So, it is an art house horror film, a very psychological horror film, which vaguely intrigued me. I mean, not enough to strongly consider buying a rental of it, but when it showed up for free on Shudder.com, I thought, I may as well, it looks kind of interesting. So, let's have a go at A Banquet, which is directed by Ruth Paxton making her feature-length debut. She's got several shorts in her past and also, weirdly, several episodes of the Scottish soap opera River City. It's written by Justin Bull, who has one low-budget film he wrote and directed in his past, but that doesn't seem to have got any distribution. But this film, A Banquet, does have a rather interesting cast. It stars Sienna Guillory, as a woman who, in the opening scene of the film, loses her husband in an incredibly traumatising, incredibly devastating way. So now she is the widowed single mother of two teenage daughters. The younger one, Ruby Stokes, who we've just heard from playing Kitty in Where Is Anne Frank?, is a somewhat typical tween girl, a little bit too self-centred, a little bit too aggressive towards her mother, not being quite as sensitive as you would like her to be. And the older one, Jessica Alexander, who last week or the week before we saw in the low-budget British film Into the Deep, she's a typical 18-year-old. I mean, a little bit shy, a little bit reserved, but on occasion, she's the kind of girl who does go out and drinks with boys and attends wild parties. Yes, most of the time she's sitting in a corner on the sofa, but she's there. She has a boyfriend, Kane Zajaz, who is nice enough, but she's starting to break free of the very rigid, very structured life her mother, Sienna Guillory, has. Created even before her husband died, it looks like Sienna Guillory was a very organized person. I mean, the opening shot of the film is Sienna Guillory desperately cleaning as her husband is essentially dying in a hospital bed next to her. Similarly
0: to the long walk, he seems to have some kind of respiratory illness. So, these two teenage girls
1: and their somewhat traumatised mother, Sienna Guillory, are living in a very modernist, stylish house. But after Jessica Alexander attends a party with her boyfriend, Kane Zajaz, something strange happens to her. She has some kind
0: of experience... And after she comes home from this party, she stops eating, like anything. She stops eating anything. And yet, apparently,
1: she's still perfectly healthy, she doesn't actually lose any weight, but she reacts incredibly violently and incredibly strongly whenever anybody even remotely suggests She eats anything. Initially, Sienna Guillory doesn't know what to do and tries to force her daughter to eat something. I mean, this is a problem to be solved, something to be fixed. But as more and more time passes and Jessica Alexander still seems perfectly healthy, albeit a little bit spacey
0: and off in her own world, and yet never eats, Sienna Guillory starts buying into her daughter's revelations and the cataclysmic prophecy that has apparently been revealed
1: to this teenage girl, Jessica Alexander. So as Sienna Guillory's overbearing mother, Lindsay Duncan, looks on, Sienna Guillory gets more and more wrapped up in her daughter
0: Jessica Alexander's revelation and the apparent devastation which is to come.
1: So there were several films that came to mind when I started seeing this film, A Banquet. I mean, one of the most obvious is actually a film we'll be talking about a little bit later. The Welsh-language film The Feast was also at the London Film Festival last year, and I actually saw it at the London Film Festival. And that's another low-budget, arthouse, British
0: horror film revolving around food. There's also a German film from
1: 2014, I think it was, called Stations of the Cross, which I really, really liked, and I think Germany was absolutely stupid for not submitting it to the Oscars. I mean, that was about a teenage girl played by Leah van Aken, who decides, essentially, she's going to starve herself to death for God. She needs to suffer as Jesus suffered on the road to Calvary, going through the Stations of the Cross in Catholic tradition. And if I suffer... The world will be better, and that's what this teenage girl brought up in a strict Catholic sect believes. So, yeah, there's definitely elements of that. There's also elements I saw of the exorcist. I mean, because initially, Sienna Guillory's reaction is to find a scientific reason, approach the mystical, approach to the supernatural with a logical mindset, and eventually being forced to confront the fact that no something weird is going on here or is it and I'll be getting back to that but ultimately the film which I think most strongly came to mind when I watched A Banquet was Take Shelter a film from I think 2012 I think it was Jeff Nichols one of his first feature films with what I believe was a genuinely Oscar-worthy performance from Michael Shannon, as a man who has become so convinced that the end of the world is coming, that he starts building himself a bunker, much to the horror of his wife and children and the local community, being so convinced that the end is nigh, that he... Puts all his efforts, all his energies into building this bunker. A really, really good film, which I loved right up until the final scene. It's one of those films that the final scene absolutely ruined it for me. But regardless, Take Shelter is ultimately what I think A Banquet most strongly reminded me of. Because here we have this young woman, Jessica Alexander. I mean, regardless of the whole not-eating-at-all thing. She is utterly, utterly convinced that the end of the world is coming. And she, her family, and the world needs to prepare themselves for this moment. And gradually, Sienna Guillory gets dragged into this mindset. I mean, it's almost a folie a situation where Jessica Alexander's Madness infects her mother, but again, that's not dealt with very well, and I'll be coming back to that. So, being absolutely convinced that the end is coming and we need to prepare, that's kind
0: of what this film ends up being. And it is quite interesting. The problem is, Sienna
1: Guillory and the people around her buy into this whole thing far too easily, and they give up on the logical a little bit too quickly. There reaches a point where it is suggested by the overbearing grandmother Lindsay Duncan and Lindsay Duncan and her daughter Sienna Guillory have a very, very complicated, very tense relationship. Sienna Guillory throughout the entire course of the film is constantly screening phone calls from her mother and towards the end of the film it is revealed that there is some real, real issues in the relationship between Sienna Guillory and her mother, Lindsay Duncan. But Lindsay Duncan suggests
0: essentially psychiatric treatment for Jessica Alexander. And I think
1: the film thinks that this act by Lindsay Duncan is being very overbearing, being very dismissive Of what is the right thing to do can't you see that my daughter is special something special is happening to her we need to listen to her not shoot her up with lithium or whatever and i think we're supposed to believe that lindsey duncan is interfering and isn't to be
0: trusted and there's background stuff which would add to the fact that we shouldn't trust lindsey duncan
1: The problem is, from my perspective, as I'm watching this film, A Banquet, I'm absolutely on Lindsay Duncan's side. Whether or not it does turn out that there is something genuinely supernatural going on, the first port of call should be psychiatric treatment. The film does not deal with the fact, strongly enough, that there should be some form of treatment, some form of medical intervention for Jessica Alexander. I mean, yes, as far as we can tell, she never loses any weight. She never gains any weight. She never loses any weight. Despite, by the end of the film, it's been at least a year, by the looks of it, that Jessica Alexander hasn't eaten
0: anything.
1: So, something weird's going on. But... The idea of medical intervention, medical treatment, and psychiatric treatment is dismissed, in my opinion, far, far too quickly. And I think Lindsay Duncan is supposed to be seen as a villain of this piece, but I'm 100% on her side, because as Sienna Guillory starts fully buying into her daughter's
0: delusions or revelations, whatever you want to call them, Sienna Guillory, I also think, starts
1: needing psychiatric intervention as well. And there's, towards the end of
0: the film, some real-world applications for that. And again, not dealt with strongly enough. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there's interesting stuff here. I mean, the
1: possession or or the revelations that Jessica Alexander goes through I mean she plays it very well I think all the acting all around is actually very good I like the way that Ruth Paxton directs things in certain places there's several places where there's really really strong close-ups of people eating and at one at the same time you can see a little bit of the sensuality of somebody eating something but also some of the disgust at somebody eating something. And the squelchy, squeamish details of the human body and bodily fluids and bodily interactions. You can see that you know this corrupted flesh might not be appealing to somebody like Jessica Alexander who has apparently had a divine revelation.
0: I like these elements, but... There's not enough of the real world in this. There's hints
1: at it here and there. I mean, there is talk of psychiatric treatment, there is talk of medical treatment, but that is far too quickly abandoned and it goes too far. I mean, at one point, Lindsay Duncan says to her daughter, Sienna Guderi, she's possessing the family because everything has stopped. I mean, it becomes apparent that with her husband dying there was already financial difficulties and now that's got even worse thanks to everything being dropped so jessica alexander can be dealt with and not eating and sleeping for 10 hours at a time and lindsay duncan says she's possessing the family and i agree with her so yeah some interesting stuff not actually dealt with very well (laughs) Actually, almost exactly the same thing I can say about The Feast, which comes out next week or this week as this podcast is coming out. So, yeah, interesting, well acted, but I don't think all the ideas were explored as well as they could have been. And it went for a little bit too much of a metaphorical and a dreamlike attitude and I would have preferred a little bit more grounding, personally. But, yeah, I think A Banquet is a decent enough film. It is available on streaming platforms, and it is also available through Shudder.com. So I would say A Banquet is an intriguing, solid meh.
0: Netflix and chill.
1: Wedding Season is a romantic comedy available on Netflix which revolves around the Indian American community in New Jersey and with this kind of project which is specifically dealing with a particular minority it has become standard or expected that the people behind the camera will be part of that minority. And indeed, this film was written by first-time writer Shuani Srivastava, which makes it all the more surprising that this film was directed by a white guy. And a white guy with an odd CV. His name is Tom Dye, and in the early 2000s, he made a string of pretty basic, pretty mainstream comedies. Shanghai Noon, Showtime, Failure to Launch and Marmaduke. And a couple of those are pretty good. I actually quite like Failure to Launch, actually. But Marmaduke was in 2010. And since then, the only thing on Tom Dye's CV is a few episodes of the TV version of Snatch. So, the first time that Tom Dye has directed a feature length
0: project in 12 years, and it's a film about Indian Americans. Weird,
1: but that's what we have here. And this is set in the Indian American community of New Jersey, where a driven career woman, Pahlavi Sharda, is happily working for a charity i'm not sure if it's a charity or a business but whichever it is it is an organization which gives microloans to women in southeast asia and she has a background in economics she left a career in banking for this job but she is very driven very determined to make this work much to the horror of her mother, Veena Sood, who insists on setting her up on lots of dates with eligible young Indian men. The biological clock is ticking, and Veena Sood needs to get her daughters married off. So finally, Pallavi confronts her mother about this, and a deal is struck. If you agree to go on this one final date with this one guy, I will remove the dating profile that I have put up for my daughter. And Pallavi thinking, okay, let's just get this over with, agrees to go on this one final date with a guy who turns out to be Suraj Sharma, who back in the day was Pi in the life of Pi. Suraj Sharma has also been basically forced into this by his parents. Particularly, his overbearing father, Manoj Sood. It's weird that the parents, the interfering parents of this couple, are played by a real-life brother and sister, Vina and Manoj Sood. Makes him, the whole thing seem rather incestuous. But anyway, Surah Sham has also been pushed into this by his father, and you know neither of them are really into it, but they realise an opportunity. We have been invited to so many Indian weddings over this summer, a total of 14 that they've both been invited to. If we agree to pretend we're dating and go to all these weddings, that will keep our parents off our backs and Pallavi Sharda will be able to complete her work and prepare for this crucial presentation she has to a group of Singaporean investors in her micro-loan project, and Suraj Sharma can just drift through life and keep everything mellow, which seems to be what he wants to do. So, as these two people, who are absolutely not interested in each other at all, spend all this time together at all these Indian weddings over the summer, Real feelings can't possibly develop,
0: can they? Of course they can. I mean, romantic comedies are the kind of
1: project. it's the kind of genre where you know exactly what you're getting and it's just a question of how well the filmmakers put everything out there. And at the end of the day... Wedding season is a very, very standard romantic comedy. It goes through all the beats that you expect. It goes through all the tribulations that you expect. I mean, oh no, you lied to me, but I still care for you. And how can I possibly forgive you for what you have done? And no, I won't make a big dramatic gesture at the end of the film to make everything right again. I mean, it goes through every single step you expect it to go down, and that's okay yes it's pretty basic yes it's pretty standard but it's done well enough i believe the chemistry between palavi and Suraj sharma i also think the side characters are very appealing palavi sister played by the singer ariana Afsar, who apparently was on america's got talent or one of those talent shows back in the day but ariana Afsar. Has a white fiance played by Sean Clare, and Sean Clyer is adorable because he is trying way, way too hard to impress his potential in-laws. You know, fully embracing Hindu culture and attitudes, and he really shouldn't have to. I mean, he is a literal brain surgeon, and yet he is trying way, way too hard to impress his fiance's family which makes him kind of adorable. The parents, the interfering parents, you know, Veena sued with her daughter, Pallavi I mean, the opening sequence is a montage, basically, of Pallavi going through her workaholic life, spending hours in front of a computer, then shoveling fast food in her mouth. And yet the voiceover is, you know, I am a proper demure indian girl looking for my indian prince charming and it becomes clear
0: that this is veena sood writing a dating profile for her daughter the juxtaposition of the unhealthy reality to the dream world which
1: is being presented in this dating profile it manages to introduce the two characters the other mother and the daughter and be mildly humorous and. and that works. And the way that Manoj Sood deals with his son, Suraj Sharma, it becomes apparent that there is some kind of deep, dark secret in the background of Suraj Sharma. And, you know, inevitably that will come out towards the end of the film. But Manoj Sood is so desperate to present a positive spin on his son. You know, my son went to MIT at 16. He was a national spelling bead champion when he was a kid. He's got prospects. He's a a good match for any girl. And the more he says this, the more you realise, you know, this probably isn't the full story, and it isn't. But everything gets explained in the end. And the attitudes that people have, you know, presenting the best foot forward, the way that people perceive you, is almost as important as the reality and the gossip riddled. I mean this culture, this society, this community, which is saturated with gossip. And, you know, oh, that his son's doing something naughty over there. And, you know, why why hasn't your daughter got married yet? I mean, it's getting a little bit old, isn't it? And you know, the the people in the background who are constantly making comments which on the surface are very supportive. Oh, you must be so happy Together. I mean, and the subtext is that happy equals married. And maybe I don't want marriage. Maybe I do want to just work myself to death. I'm happy doing that. I don't need a man in my life. And palavi Sharma just does that. Even when she's attending all these weddings, she's always got her laptop with her. She's not even trying very hard to make it look like she's actually dating Suraj Sharma. I mean, yes, they're there together. But she's constantly just typing away on her laptop, and Sarah Sharma's off on his own, despite the fact you yeah, know they're technically there to go. Pallavi Sharma is really, really not trying very hard to make this look real. Until eventually, you know, there's a moment of soul-bearing honesty, and then oh, actually, I do actually kind of like hanging out with with this person, and yeah, gradually they former bond and then you know the secret is revealed and oh no you lied to me i'm running off it's it's every single cliche of a romantic comedy you've ever seen it just happens to have this reasonably unexplored reasonably interesting setting of having it set in an indian american community and having all these cultural and societal and community pressures put upon you you know You need to have a good education. You need to have a good marriage. You need to have worked hard. I mean, the people before you, the generations before you, need to have worked hard to come to this country and make something of yourself. I mean, there's a repeated motif of the boat that Pallavi grandfather used to have, and this boat that he fished in in India eventually led to, the generations coming behind him all going to university and all having successful lives and careers and yeah it, it, it does have that extra element to it of the cultural and societal pressures but at the end of the day it's a very very standard romantic comedy and it goes through the motions and it goes through the motions pretty well and that's more or less all i can say about wedding season you get absolutely 100% what you expect and basically nothing more. And everything is done just well enough that it's a diverting, engaging enough experience that you won't regret having. So on the terms of being a very basic, very standard romantic comedy, Wedding Season, available on Netflix, is a solid, unspectacular
0: meh. Coming Attractions
1: It's a really, really weird week at the cinema this week. The only really wide release that's out this week is a film I have zero interest in, Fisherman's Friends One and For All, the sequel to the heartwarming British movie from a couple of years back, based on a true story. Didn't watch the original, had no interest in it, so I've got absolutely no interest in the sequel. But for some reason, that's the only film that's getting a wide release this week. Of the other films that are getting limited releases, as I've already mentioned, I've seen the Welsh-language horror film The Feast as part of the London Film Festival, and you can go back and check out my archive for my London Film Festival special. The Feast is a Welsh-language film about a rich family. I mean, the father is the local MP in a Welsh valley who is preparing to have a dinner party with a local businessman who's giving him backhanders and one of his neighbours who this businessman wants to exploit their land. And in preparation for this dinner party, A young girl who works in the village and nobody has ever seen before. The usual girl they use in such situations has a prior engagement, so her friend is going to help out in her place. So this girl, who nobody's ever seen before, shows up at the door and is immediately put to work. Okay, you must be the girl from the village. Come in and help us prepare this dinner party. And then weird shit starts going down. And by the end of the film, it gets very, very gory. It's intended to be some kind of eco-horror. And yes, that kind of works. But I honestly don't think it goes far enough. And in places, I think the gore goes a little bit too far, at least for my personal taste. So I was impressed by The Feast. I would be absolutely astonished if the UK didn't submit it to the International Feature Oscar this year, but I can't say I truly liked The Feast, but it's probably worth checking out if you like your horror movies, and that is out at the cinema this week, as is another horror movie, Orphan First Kill. Thirteen years after the original movie Orphan, they've made a sequel, or rather a prequel, with the same leading actress, Isabel Furman, which kind of makes sense if you know the twist of the original film Orphan, and my god, the original twist of Orphan was one of those genuinely surprising things, I did not see that coming at all. But the original movie, Orphan, back in 2009, was a young girl comes from Eastern Europe to be adopted into an American family, and then weird shit starts going down. And things get a lot more sexual than you would like, a lot more creepy than you would like, and eventually everything goes to hell. And now, 13 years later, they've made a prequel with the same character, played by the same actress, Isabel Furman, about the first American family who tried to adopt this girl from Eastern Europe. 13 years later, with the same actress. I mean, judging by the trailer, Isabel Furman can still pull it off. But yeah, I am very, very interested in Orphan First Kill. I think there's a very very strong chance that I'm going to be giving Isabel Furman at least an honourable mention as Best Actress in my Raw Footage Awards this year for her role in The Novice the film about a college girl trying out for her rowing team and I did give Isabel Furman one of my personal Oscar nominations in my Oscar preview show. I mean Isabel Furman was outstanding standing in the novice and she was also really good in another shudder.com movie earlier in the year the last thing mary saw she had a well she's basically the second lead in that movie so yeah isabel furman's having a hell of a year and i want to continue that with orphan first kill but i don't think i'll actually be going out to the cinema to see orphan first kill for a couple of reasons Firstly, here in Bath, the only screenings I can easily get to all start at 9pm, which in general is far, far later than I like to go to the cinema. And secondly, in the United States, Orphan First Kill is being released onto Paramount+. Plus. So, my suspicion is, or at least my hope is, that within a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, Orphan First Kill will be available on Paramount Plus here in the UK, and I will just be able to watch it at home with no guilt and no compunction about pirating it. So I'm probably going to hold off on Orphan
0: First Kill, but if you're interested, that should be out at the cinemas this week. There's
1: also a French film called Anaïs in Love, which again, I'm probably going to skip. It looks like a very, very French film about sleeping with various people, about a 30-something woman who's a bit of a mess, is having an affair with a married man, and is not feeling all that guilty about it, and then suddenly she falls in love with this guy's wife now i'm not sure if this is you know the first time this has ever happened she's attracted to a woman or if you know she's just that open that man woman it doesn't matter but either way it does sound very very french and very concerned with you know comedy of manners and sexual politics and all that kind of stuff and since i'm almost certainly going to have to go all the way over to bristol to watch it i'm not sure i'm interested enough in Anaïs in love to actually make a special trip to bristol in order to watch it so i might see Anaïs in love but probably not which means that there's every possibility that the only cinematic trip i will be making this week is to a very small, very obscure, and very weird film, which I think is being distributed by Picture House and therefore might only be viewable in Picture House cinemas. But it does sound really, really interesting. It's called My Old School and is a documentary made by a man who is looking back on his school days. And the weird and wonderful and bizarre story of one of his classmates. The scandalous story of one of his classmates. And reading between the lines, I think I can work out what this scandal is. But it's being a bit coy in the trailers. All his old classmates, and I think even some of his old teachers, who this guy is interviewing about this guy and what happened back when they were in school, tells the story and while apparently the subject of this documentary was interviewed he didn't want to appear on screen
0: so his interviews have been lip-synced by Alan Cumming which is an interesting
1: choice and makes it look all the more strange and it looks like there's animated sequences of this film as well so All of it looks really interesting, and I think the only cinematic trip I'm going to be making next week is to watch My Old School. Okay, so it's now a day after I initially recorded this section of the podcast, but I felt the need to add this little addendum. Because as I've been going through the editing process of this podcast, I happened to notice that at the very last minute, the Watershed Cinema has added another film to their programme. It is a film I was very interested in seeing, but it looked like I was just going to have to miss because it wasn't available. But now it is. It looks like I will be heading over to the Watershed, and therefore I probably will also check out the French film Anaïs in Love. This new film is a documentary called Free Chol Soo Lee about a Korean American man who, in the 1970s, was convicted of murder. Years later, an investigative journalist had a look at the case and realised that Chol Soo Lee was the victim of racial profiling and he was clearly innocent of the crime for which he had been convicted and in the wake of this revelation the Asian American community rallied around Charles Suley and I believe managed to get him released. This feels like a very important a very necessary documentary I know it played at the Sundance Film Festival and therefore I think there's a reasonably strong chance that this film will end up at least on the 15-film long list for Documentary Feature Oscar this year. So I definitely did want to check it out, and I just didn't think I would have access to it. But here we are, and I did feel the need to record this little addendum. If that appeals to you, or if it sounds like it might be something you'd be interested in, you now hopefully have a chance to actually seek it out although I do believe eventually this will be showing up on Mubi.com. But regardless, Free Chol Su Lee, the documentary, has been added to the list. So now back to our regularly recorded program.
0: At home, there's a couple of films which hopefully
1: will be available on Shudder.com, but... As ever, what is advertised as coming out on Shudder.com might only be available on US Shudder, but I think this week I'm going to have access to what looks like a really, really strange film called Glorious, which follows a man, Ryan Quanten, who in the aftermath of a breakup is taking a long road trip. And he ends up at a truck stop in the middle of nowhere. Goes to the bathroom and realises he cannot leave this bathroom. He is trapped in the bathroom. And then somebody in a closed stall starts talking
0: to him. Through a glory hole. With the voice of J.K. Simmons.
1: And judging by the trailer, it looks like J.K. Simmons is not human and is quite possibly some kind of Lovecraftian horror from an
0: alternative dimension or nightmares or whatever, but a horrific abomination talking to
1: somebody through a glory hole in a deserted rest stop that's Strange. I mean sometimes you really, really wonder where people get these ideas. I mean, not that long ago there was another Shudder.com film, Revealer, which was set largely in a peep show booth. So yeah, Glorious sounds like a really, really strange film. And theoretically, that is coming out on Shudder.com this week. But one thing I do know is already on Shudder.com and does look quite interesting is a very low budget, very small scale film called Alone With You in which a young woman is desperately waiting for her girlfriend to come back to the country and come back home after a long time abroad. As she is waiting for her girlfriend to show up psychological cracks start appearing hallucinations seem to be happening judging by the trailer and the balance of her mind is brought into question so what exactly is going on in the mind and in the soul and in the body of this young woman as she is waiting for her girlfriend to come home and yeah that kind of small scale filmmaking does really intrigue me so I know that Shudder.com already has the film Alone With You available, so that is another one I will be checking out, or at least has been added to the list. On Netflix, there's a couple of new movies. The first one I was already interested in, and then I discovered who the director was. It's a film called Look Both Ways which stars Lily Reinhardt, who I mostly know from the film Hustlers, but apparently has been on the TV show Riverdale. But Lily Reinhardt ends up in kind of a sliding doors-like situation. And it's weird that when I say sliding doors, you almost certainly know what I'm talking about. But that plot hasn't actually been done a lot since Sliding Doors. I mean, it's such a good premise, and yet why haven't we seen more films like this? But anyway, in this particular situation, Lily Reinhardt, on the night of her college graduation, takes a pregnancy test. And then her life diverges into two completely separate pathways Depending on whether that pregnancy test was positive or negative. And we get to see both versions of Lily Reinhardt's life play out. One where she's a mother in her hometown, the other one where she moves to Los Angeles in order to pursue her artistic endeavors. And yeah, that sounds really, really fascinating. And I was already intrigued by this premise because, like I said, we don't actually see this you know, quote-unquote sliding doors idea done all that often and then when I was you know looking at it doing some research I realized it was directed by Wanuri Kahiu which is a really really strange name to be attached to this American movie because Wanuri Kahiu is the Kenyan director who a couple of years ago did the really highly regarded festival darling film Rafiki about a lesbian relationship in nairobi now this was a film that did the worldwide festival circuit was adored by the critics everybody loved it i saw it i thought it was pretty good i mean it's one of those things that this type of queer story i've seen in the english-speaking world in the western world so many times already that it was a little bit old hat by the time i saw it in 2018 in kenya But, you know, it was good enough.
0: Uh, I certainly enjoyed it. But, because it dealt with a queer subject, Kenya, who,
1: let's not forget, is a country with a tiny, tiny film industry,
0: did not submit Rafiki to the International Film Oscar. Which is depressing. I mean, a country like Kenya,
1: you know, not wanting to promote LGBTQ plus people. And, you know, despite international condemnation and Wanuri Kahiu protesting herself, Rafiki was not submitted to the Oscars. And, in fact, Kenya deliberately submitted something else, despite the fact that they really didn't have anything eligible to send. I believe it might even have been a kids' movie that they ended up submitting. But yeah, Rafiki is one of the many, many scandals that has happened in the international feature or foreign language feature, Oscar, submission, Cascarism. The more I think about it, the more I think that's the subject for another video of mine. When Uri Kahiu, after this shitstorm in 2018, the next time we see her, her next credit on IMDb, is this somewhat mainstream, somewhat generic American film for
0: Netflix. Which is weird, but that's made me all the more fascinating to see look both ways. And the other movie I'm planning to see, which
1: has been released on Netflix this week, is a Norwegian film called Royal Teen about a girl who moves to a new school after a scandal rocked her in her old school and unexpectedly she forms a friendship, even a relationship, with the Crown Prince of Norway who happens to be one of her classmates. And this... Friendship, this bond. I mean, obviously, it gets into the press and everything. And can she keep her dark secret hidden from the scandal mongers and the royal observers who are watching everything the Crown Prince does? So, yeah, it sounds like a bit of a teenage soap opera, but that's, I think, a really good premise. So, I do want to check out Royal Teen as well. Staying on the Netflix list, we still have the documentary Stay On Board, the Leo Baker story about a trans skateboarder. I really wanted to get to that this week, but I just ran out of time. There's also the Jamie Foxx action comedy Day Shift about a blue-collar vampire hunter whose only concern is getting some braces for his daughter. There's also the Indian film, Darlings, about a mother and daughter who try and get rid of the daughter's problematic husband and aren't very good at it. There's the Lena Waithe written film, Beauty, about a young woman attempting to break into the music industry in the 80s with pressures from the record label, her family and her girlfriend. And I'm still hoping to get to the animated feature with the awesome name, Chicken Hair and the Hamster of Darkness. I mean,
0: it can't possibly live up to what I imagined after listening to the title, but yes, that remains on the list.
1: I have gone through one of my periodic phases of downloading loads of streaming movies onto my tablet to eventually get to. So already available to me and ready to go are the streaming movies Language Lessons, starring Mark Duplass and Natalie Morales, a film shot during COVID over Zoom about a man who reluctantly agrees to take Spanish lessons and then forms a very strong bond with his teacher. There's also War Muffin, a very, very low-budget film about a male and a female sniper who get tired of shooting at each other across a valley, so meet up in the middle to basically hook up, much to the chagrin of their commanding officers and the watching press. And there's also Love Spreads, about a rock band trying to finish their difficult second album in the legendary Rockfield Studios in Monmouthshire in Wales. Amongst other things, that was where Bohemian Rhapsody was mostly recorded. But, yeah, this rock band is having difficulties actually getting any work done, much to the exasperation of their producer, Nick Helm, but these artistic types, including awesome actresses Isa Gonzalez and Alia Shawkat, are just not able to do anything. I mean, that's such a weird combination. Alia Shawkat, Isaac Gonzalez, and Nick Helm. How did that happen? But yeah, I'm very, very curious about Love Spreads, which is available through streaming platforms. I'm still really keen to get to the Predator prequel, Prey, available through Disney+, Plus, where a Comanche female warrior from the early 18th century Goes up against a predator. And apparently, judging by what I've read on Wikipedia, it directly relates to Predator 2, which I have seen Predator 2, I think, but not for decades. But anyway, Prey on Disney Plus remains on the list. And available in my Skybox, I still want to get to Father of the Bride, the latest version of that old story this time with a Hispanic cast including Andy Garcia, Gloria Estefan, Adriana Jonah, and Isabel Merced. And there's also Honor Society available through Paramount Plus and available through Sky Cinema, tangentially, where a driven and determined high school girl played by Anguri Rice tries to sabotage her rival to get into Harvard, Galen Matarazzo, by pretending to fall in love with him and then break his heart, but of course, real emotions get in the way. So, yeah, plenty of stuff to get to. And as I said, I also am going to be working on my Vanishing movie over the next week or so. I mean, I've already done a lot of research, I mean, more research than I'll ever actually use in the video, but it's fascinating stuff. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to putting all that together. So, Within the next week or so, hopefully you'll be able to see my video about The Vanishing. And before I leave you, a reminder that there was one yay on this particular episode, and that was, surprisingly, the Laotian film The Long Walk. It astonishes me just how much I was impressed by this film. I mean, I wasn't expecting all that much, but I was really really impressed dealing with the consequences of time travel the consequences of a particular traumatized mindset and how that can affect you over the entire course of your life how wanting to help is often just pure selfishness there's so many things going on in the long walk and i was very very impressed You can find it on streaming platforms and you can also find it on Shudder.com. And for me, the Laotian film The Long Walk was a definite yay. So that brings me to the end of the main body of this podcast. But as promised earlier, I will now be recording a spoiler section for the film Nope, because I really need to get some spoiler stuff off my chest with this movie. So after the little bumper, you can assume that everything that happens in Jordan Peele's film, Nope, will be spoiled. So with that fair warning said,
0: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The spoiler for the film, Nope, can be summed up with one word. Tremors. Essentially. NOPE is a remake of the
1: classic 1980s creature feature, Tremors. It turns out that the UFO or the UAP that people in this remote valley are dealing with is not a craft or a ship of any kind, it's actually a living creature which makes it all the more relevant that Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer are animal trainers. And the story about what happens when you inadequately train an animal with this chimpanzee that went on the rampage, all of it builds together. It's about a creature and how you deal with a creature and the entity that it is,
0: not how you deal with a mechanical craft. Tremors, Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward, two people in a remote valley who encounter an
1: unusual biological creature and eventually work out how to deal with it. Nope, two people, Dana Clue and Kiki Palmer, live in a remote valley, come across a dangerous biological creature and work out how to deal with it. Fundamentally this is basically the same plot with a few additions. I mean the addition of the Stephen U. N. character who also tries to exploit this phenomena for monetary gain very much the same way that the first thing that Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer think about when initially they th- just think it's a UFO. I mean if we can get a really good picture of a UFO, maybe we can get onto Oprah, maybe we can make some money out of it. And Stephen Yuan is already doing this. I mean, like I said, he runs this small, tacky Western theme park, and he is basically putting on a daily show. I mean, one of the early plot lines, I mean, one of the ways we realise that the business of Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer is struggling is they're having to sell off their well-trained horses to Stephen Yuan, But what it turns out that Stephen Yuan's doing it is he's putting these horses in an arena and just waiting for them to be eaten by this thing out of the clouds. This thing who is hiding behind a cloud, a cloud that never actually moves. And how many times do you actually look at clouds and do you notice if a cloud is absolutely static for days on end? That's one of the first things that they realise, oh, there's something weird going on here. But anyway, Stephen Yuen is basically putting these horses out and waiting for them to be eaten from something from the sky. And this is actually something I have an issue with in the film, Nope. Because, in my opinion, Jordan Peele was not only coy about the revelations of Nope leading up to the film, within the film itself... His coy about what's going on until this moment. Until Stephen Yuan starts putting on this show, the idea, the concept that this is a living creature rather than a UFO in the sky has not really come up. And suddenly, essentially, Stephen Yuan is staking out a horse and waiting for it to be eaten. And this is the first time that we as an audience fully understand that, oh, This is a living being, a living entity in the sky, not a craft. And it comes out of nowhere. I mean, for me, I think a little bit more build-up, a little bit more of a suggestion that it was a biological thing in the sky rather than a mechanical thing in the sky would have been beneficial. But suddenly, oh, it's a creature and it eats horses, and that's the reality of the situation. I personally don't think that worked very well. So, yeah, that was one of the things which niggles me about Nope. And as I said, I think it's a fun film. I do think it's worth watching, but I don't think it's a great film. And it's possible that Jordan Peele is one of those directors who had an absolutely storming debut feature. And nothing else can live up to that because Nope is just fun. And ultimately,. It's a remake of Trammers, which Jordan Peele in the past has publicly stated he is a huge fan of. So, yeah, mildly disappointed with Nope, but I do still think it's worth watching. And I guess that brings me to the end of the show. So all that remains for me to say is this has been Yane Ormer, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod and I'll see you next time
0: where I shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure.